More today about the war in Ukraine, but also about sea power. The Russian interest in Ukraine, and especially in Crimea, has an ideological dimension, but also an aspect of maritime strategy. What is Russia's approach to maritime issues? And what is NATO's? How should the United States balance between the threats posed by Russia and by China? And how does China look at naval warfare? And who are the canonical strategists who can help us think these issues through? It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I'm joined today by Professor James Holmes. He's the J.C. Wiley Chair of Maritime Strategy at the U.S. Naval War College. He's the author of, among many other things, A Brief Guide to Maritime Strategy. And uh, as we were just discussing before we started recording, you know, the, the original thought behind this this episode was following on the great conversation we had with Frank Ludwig a couple months ago about air power. I was going to interrogate you along similar lines about sea power and, and kind of keep it at 30,000 feet and, and, and conceptual. But we're recording this here, and I'll say the date and the time because things are evolving so quickly. On Tuesday, March 1st at about 10 in the morning, we are in the midst of a, a you know, pretty significant war right on the edge of NATO and Ukraine. And it seemed odd not to drill down on that and, and talk about that, but talk about it in a way that still explores its its historical dimensions and the, the, the broader questions of strategy that connect to it. So so first of all, Professor Holmes, thanks so much for joining the show. Hey, I greatly appreciate the invitation. So let's, you know, you, you teach at the Naval War College. You are, you know, obviously in the, the center, at, at the center of the Navy's professional military education and, and, and the shaping of its strategic vision for the future. You know, on, on balance, compared to the amount of time and energy that goes into thinking about China and the Pacific, how much time is thinking spent thinking about Russia, about the NATO alliances, naval considerations? You know, what's 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 the quantity and what are sort of the broad strokes of, of that conversation? Well, I mean, I think we're trying to do it all. We, we certainly got uh, oriented towards China early. I, I, I could just point to the organization of the college uh, to help make the point. Uh, in 2006, uh, the college... Uh, uh, founded what it calls the China Maritime Studies Institute, which is a group of language specialists that basically sit and study what study what Chinese strategists and, and officials are saying about various various issues. That's what they do. They do that. They speak and they write. I think I've I've actually lo- lost track of the timeline. But the, some years later, it was probably this is probably four or five years ago. We created a Russia Maritime Studies Institute to, to, to do to do basically the same thing. So again, so China was sort of the leading indicator, and Russia in Russia is uh, sort of the following indicator. But we have gotten serious about both. There's always wargaming going on across across the street in our wargaming department and so forth, and and I think there are many Europe games as well. I will say that I will say that uh, three administ- administrations now have been very clear that the Indo-Pacific is the, the priority theater for the United States, which is one reason one reason uh, us maritime people were glad to we're glad to see uh, the withdrawal from the Middle East, which was which was sucking up, but you know, depending on the, depending on the day, one, one to two carrier battle groups it just just providing close air support in Afghanistan. I mean, that's that's a huge part of our operating uh, naval air power. But I mean, but but it's it's become quite clear that uh, China and Russia either deliberately by by uh, colluding with one another or just uh, just by happenstance are being opportunistic and trying to stretch us at both ends of, of Eurasia. And I, I think we have to respond to that as well. So 
Yeah, it's a, I mean, the college is like, is like everywhere else. There's factions. There's the Asia faction, of which I'm one. Then there's the Russia and Europe faction that, that's always uh, struggling for uh, uh, for visibility and res- resources as well. Got it. Got it. Well, we'll, we'll come around to, to Asia then, I, I think, in a, in a bit. But just just to drive in the in the general direction of Ukraine. And, and you know, I know you've you, you keep an eye on on Putin and on, on Russia, in addition to your other other areas of focus. And you published on it recently. What, what when Vladimir Putin looks at the world? in a strategic sense, what does he see? Well, I mean, I guess there's sort of a land and a sea component. I mean, the, the land component is, I mean, he's pretty, been pretty upfront. He doesn't want NATO at, uh, at Russia's border. I mean, this is much like China and North Korea. They would not like to see a unified Korea for the same reason. A great power just doesn't want a, a rival great power operating right off its, uh, right off its frontiers. I mean, he's, I mean, I know he's issued his list of demands and so denazification and all that uh, foolishness and so forth, but that's, re- that's really what it is, is that I think the geopolitics, I mean, this is, Pushing back a, bu- a buffer space is something that's uh, that's very very important to uh, to Russia and pre- President Putin seems to particularly uh, attuned to this. The maritime component, I think, is uh, I think this and I think this goes back to my saying that uh, China and Russia are trying to stretch us in the maritime space or uh, space around Eurasia as well. I mean, if you look at the map, I mean, just look at the map. Look at all the look at all the seas that enfold Eurasia. These are what the marginal seas, marginal seas, according to uh, Nicholas Spikeman, probably the greatest geopolitics scholar ever back in the, back in World War II. He points out that if the United States or any any globally dominant sea power wants to radiate power into the rimlands of Eurasia, which is where the action is usually at, it has to be able to command those seas, or else, or else the navy and the amphibious forces just can't get there. Beyond the sort of generic questions of of buffers and keeping great powers, um, you know, out of their littoral waters and things like that, for Putin and Ukraine specifically, what what is the meaning of Ukraine for Putin's vision of of Russia? Does it occupy some some special place that you know some some other territorial you know adjacent territory may not? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, and you'd have to ask a, a serious Russia historian about this, but I mean, the, the Ukraine, Kiev, and Rus is the original seat of Russian civilization. So I mean, even even apart from all the geopolitics stuff, I mean, that's it, it has it has an emotional resonance just to, just because that's where the Russian the, the Russian state originated way back many centuries ago. So, so there's that, there's the geopolitics and I, yeah, and I think those are really the things that, that have obsessed Putin. I, I do think he's, I, th- I do think he's demanding regime change in Ukraine at the, at the very least. I mean, I think that that's what I, that's what I interpret denazification to mean, i.e. moving a removing a fascist government, which is what he's trying to say, which is, which is kind of absurd, but it's, but it does seem to be the, uh, the, the banner that he's, that he's flying underneath. So I don't know if it actually means actually incorporating Ukraine back into Russia. There's been talk about Belarus uh, be, being incorporated back into into a greater Russia for, for some time, and that hasn't happened. I, I would suspect that uh, Putin would, I think he would probably settle for sort of that sort of status for Ukraine in the future. Russia-friendly government that's uh, responsive to, to Moscow's wishes. Yeah, I, I have to say when uh, the news came out in the last couple of days that Turkey was going to close off the the Bosporus and the Dardanelles, you know, a, a couple of things struck me. One, that there was a potentially serious naval dimension to this war that I had not previously considered. And if you had asked me to, you know, predict where you might actually get some sort of, you know, armed encounter between NATO forces and Russia forces a few days ago, I would have said, well, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, you have, you're bombing around Lviv, you're bombing around the the, the Western border of Ukraine up against NATO states, that's probably where you're going to see, you know, some sort of potential path to escalation. I would not necessarily have picked the straits at the bottom of the Black Sea, but here we are. If you see Russian ships, you know, attempt to contest the closure of these straits, Turkey is, uh, you know, of course, a NATO member and things could get complicated and interesting there very quickly. 
And then I, I further thought, you know, well, gosh, we kind of all been here before <laughs> this, you know, the, the Crimean War, what, 150 years ago, in, in certain respects has, um, has parallels to, to the present conflict. I know you're a, a scholar of Julian Corbett and others who, who gave a, a lot of thought to, to that period in history. Does that, does that seem right to you? Do you think there's something that the 1850s have to tell us about what's going on today? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a recurring, I mean, a lot of these things that Mark Twain famously said that uh, history never repeats itself, but it does rhyme. And it's, and, and I, I certainly hear rhymes out of there, that, that era. Uh, to me, to me, the latter rhyme though is just because a lot of the a lot of the standoff between NATO and Russia is happening in the Eastern Mediterranean. It always my go-to example is always back to 1973 during the Arab-Israeli War, which was a time which is a time that really threw a shock into the United States Navy leadership because it it, it under it underlined that the Soviet Navy was now a serious peer force to be reckoned with. I mean, we we. We had seen that we had seen the Soviet Navy start acting globally and so forth, but during the during that uh, during that uh, expedition, the Soviet Mediterranean squadron actually outnumbered the U.S. Sixth Fleet based to based in Italy, and that was and and also we lo- we looked at the Soviet Navy. We saw that its ships were we it were younger than ours. We had an aging fleet. They had a and they had a, a very young fleet and so forth. So this was something that really gave us pause, which I in a sense was a good thing because I think that was a wake up call for us to to start getting serious about the sea again after uh, after the Vietnam era. Uh, and all the bad things, the oil shocks, and all that kind of stuff that were uh, that were on everybody's lips when I was a little kid growing up in the 1970s. And, and yeah. what what's the nature of the situation in the eastern Eastern Med today in terms of the Russian Navy? Yeah, I think I think they're basically just trying to deter us from intervening in the war in Ukraine. I don't I don't really I don't really regard it as all that likely that we would get into a scrap with the with the Soviet ships. We we have about equal numbers in, in the area, but our our numbers include a couple of aircraft. I think the Italian aircraft. I'm not sure if the French uh, Charles de Gaulle is there. I, I know that we have Harry S. Truman in the Mediterranean and the and the Cub War, which which flies F-35s, is also there. Hmm. So the numbers look about the same, but I, I would say we're we're more capable. But nonetheless, they're just trying to deter us from doing anything uh, in Ukraine. But uh, but I think there are differences from 1973 that are pretty striking. But at the same time, I mean, it's the same it's the same geographic space uh, that we're, and. Uh, Soviet Union wasn't a direct combatant, nor were we in, uh, in, in the 1973 war. But nonetheless, we were we were uh, we were trying to back up our allies, and that resulted in a, in a show of naval force in a very crowded uh, maritime terrain. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the if the reach of tactical aircraft and anti-ship missiles fired from land these days, they can overshadow most, if not all, of the Eastern Mediterranean, depending on where those batteries and airfields are. I realize this this question kind of moves us into the area of, of guesswork, but I'm I'm just curious to know your thoughts of you know, what the outcome of, of the closure of, of, you know, these straits of the access from the, the Aegean, the Eastern Mediterranean up into the Black Sea, how that's going to play out, you know, is, is Putin just going to accept that? Um, are the Turks ultimately going to take their foot off the brake there? You know, how, how, how does this end? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I was actually, uh, I was actually, you know, pleasantly surprised when, uh, when Ankara did put it, put down its foot on this under the Bontropa Convention, which is, Kind of, kind of weird to see that being uh, late breaking headlines in a 1936 treaty, but but so it is, and I, yeah, I mean that's it, it's hard to say. I mean that the tur- Turkey knows that it has to live with Russia forever. The United States and NATO may come and go. Russia will always be there, as will as will Ukraine in some form or another. So it's kind of a, del- a delicate ba- ba- balancing act that uh, that Turkey is pulling. Whether they, man, it's 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 really hard to say whether uh, Russia would actually try to force the Straits and then force uh, Turkey's hand. Possibly so. I mean, uh, quite clearly, uh, Putin is in gambling mode, so you never know. I will say that I don't think I don't think it's going to matter that much. I, I I would have a hard time seeing NATO put a fleet into the Black Sea. I mean, just for, for the same reason. I bit. 
uh, land-based de- defenses that can reach out the sea can, can can overshadow much of the Black Sea, and that's that's just not that's just not got good operating terrain for a for a large mobile fleet like a carrier strike group. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm curious. I got I got to ask just because I I will confess I'm ignorant of the details. But what is this 1936 treaty that that uh, Turkey is using as justification for closing the straits? Oh, I'm sorry. There, it sounded it sounded like you were uh, you were uh, all horsed up on that. Yeah, it's the it, it's out there on the internet as as most treaties are. Uh, the Montreux Convention. It was it, it basically gives Turkey control of the straits, and it actually and it actually speci- I haven't read it in quite some of my t- time myself, but it actually specifies that in time of war. The straits shall be closed to warships, and uh, Turkey has interpreted that to mean that Black Sea fleet ships of the, of the Russian Navy that are in the Mediterranean can go back, but no, but no, but but nothing new can come in, which is one reason why we saw the Russians moving amphibious craft and so forth into into the Black Sea in the last few weeks, is so they could do that that sort of flanking maneuver by by water that they've they've done in the last couple of days. And in, in, you you think that they, well, pr- presumably they they did it a to have them on station when the fighting began, but perhaps they also anticipated this move it seems it seems just Absolutely it surprised so. me yeah i was I, I mean if you don't you don't normally i mean i mean russia yes russia i mean excuse me turkey is a, is a nato member but it is it is far from on good terms with the rest of the alliance so it is so it is kind of uh it was a little bit of a shock to see that to, to see that happen if it were france if it were france controlling the straits or somebody like that then it would be a big surprise but uh, turkey's been on the outs and has tried has tried to be more friendly with russia in recent years so but there we are yeah but there just there 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 seems beyond this there seems to be I, I've I've seen other indications of Turkish friendliness in general less towards its NATO allies and more towards the Ukrainians and then of course you have the you had the Turks and the Russians go a few rounds out in a, in Azerbaijan as well in the last uh, you know in, in in recent history so there there is a there as you put it the Turks have to live with Russia forever that living with them though seems to involve a fair amount of competition. Yeah, I think so. I say, I mean, it, it really has been kind of uh, dizzy to see how Europe, how Europe has turned around, sort of pivoted on its attitudes towards. I mean, think about Germany. We've been trying to get Germany to spend up above uh, two to two percent of GDP on uh, on defense for many years, and all of a sudden, in the last twenty four hours, they've decided they're going to do it. They're going to ship arms to Ukraine. They're they're going to. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I think inertia is a very po- a powerful force in human nature, and uh, it, it's really hard until you get a real jolt to the system, to to your worldview, or whatever you want to call it. To, uh, to really get you to come to terms with the surroundings as they exist, rather than as you wish they existed, and I think that's I think that's possibly what we're seeing happen. Yeah, I have I have to confess, I um for for all the obvious ways in which the German pivot towards seriousness on Ukraine and then towards you know its own defense obligations is a positive thing. There's there's a nagging, I have a nagging worry somewhere from the back of my head that that reviews the the general contributions of, of the German state to international security since its yeah. creation. It's really sad. I mean, if you look at the state, there was a time, there was a time not long ago when uh, Germany had eight functional combat aircraft, eight, that <laughs> this is supposed yeah. to be the strongest state in Europe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've got a lot, if they start spending, if they start spending more lavishly, that's a good thing, but it's going to take them a long time to make up lost ground. Yeah, that's, that's true. I, I suppose I was being slightly more, um, slightly more radical in my in my concern, which is that this this being a good thing, not only in the short and the middle run, but also in the long run, is tied up in the assumption that German interests remain NATO's interests and the EU's interests and America's interests in the long run. Um, <laughs> which, you know, it seems, I agree, it seems like kind of a laughable thing to say in yeah, 2022, but, um, you know. Well, I, have to, I have to say, I grew, I, uh, I started off life as a, as a German hand, and, uh, spending time in Germany. I was... <laughs> 
I would never say, I don't want you to be like you were during the Third Reich, but I wish you would be a little bit more like you were during Imperial Germany, especially under, <laughs> under Bismarck. I mean, if they could be a little bit more like Bismarck in Germany, that's, uh, yeah. you know, strong and, but yes, sort of self-restrained. That's a, that's a good thing. Which, by the way, is what, that's kind of what Japan thinks of it. Japan thinks of itself as being a little bit more like Imperial Japan pre-World War II. So before all the conquests and so forth, they, they look back to the time of the Meiji Emperor as a, in that in sort of that way. And I think that's, I think that's guides how they do foreign policy. Yeah. So let's you let's talk about how how this might end for for Putin. I mean, he's signaled this this nuclear alert, which you know reaction to it has been sort of mixed. Some people have um, been very concerned about it. Others have have suggested this is sort of right out of sort of out of standard doctrine and nothing to be too concerned about. You know, first of all, what's your what's your take on that and this bigger bigger picture? Do you think there's a way in which this end well ends well for for Putin? I don't think I don't think it ends well. In fact, I think you could make the case that it already has not ended well, just because it, I mean, it pretty pretty clearly Moscow wanted a quick, decisive victory, like within a, within a day or two over Ukraine, and that that has not happened. In fact, it's been, been kind of so, been kind of strange to see President Zelensky, as a former stand-up comedy comedian. I mean, he's he's not he may not be Churchill, but I mean, he's he's got some he's clearly got some backbone and, and some rhetorical skills that have really fired up the Ukrainian people, and I think that's a good thing. But there's, there's been a lot of chatter around the, around my apartment this morning about, uh, I mean, about why things haven't gone better for Russia. I think the sort of the drift of opinion is that Russia's holding some things back because it worries that NATO might get into the fighting and it, and it might need that air power to, to, to engage with Poland or whoever, whoever the case may be. Uh, if NATO, I, I don't think NATO is going to get involved beyond uh, uh, helping the Ukrainians help themselves by shipping them arms and, and equipment and so forth. But, but I've just, so that's kind of, that's kind of where, where we are. As far as, as far as, yeah, as far as ending well, I mean, it, he gave, he gave the Ukrainians at that uh, summit meeting yesterday, a checklist. I don't think the Ukrainians can accept uh, regime change as a condition of ending the fighting. I mean, that's just, I mean, they're, they're basically just giving up if they do that. So I don't think Putin's going to get that without actually conquering, uh, conquering the whole country and you know, probably, probably waging a successful counterinsurgency after that. It seems like the U- Ukrainians have been, have been anticipating this for a while and they, they, they may well have, have planned ahead to wage an insurgency if indeed there's a decapitation in Kiev. I, I have to say, I, you know, it, it's it's worth reflecting on the fact that, you know, Putin by by trade is an intelligence officer, not a military officer. And he's, yep. he's coming off of the succession of, you know, successful military gambits, all of which were high stakes and unpredictable, all of which broke his way, but all of which were much more limited in just, just scale. I mean, much, much more limited than what he's attempting now. The number I keep seeing thrown around is sort of 200,000 troops, give or take. Something like that. Yeah, I think 190 was the, was the, was the count on the eve of the invasion. Yep. That's a big country. That's it's a big the, country. It's Europe's second biggest country. Full of, full of people, especially as you go west, who don't like Russians. Uh, yeah, it's, I, it's, in fact, I did, I did a piece just last week in which I, I just sort of went back to the mass, to, to the strategic canon and, and looked for guidance on how to stage an insurgency. And I, so I called it how to stage an insurgency against Russia. <laughs> well, well get, get, let, let us in on the let us in on your insights. How, how should uh, how should the Ukrainians stage an insurgency if it, as it seems likely comes to that? Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it was sort of sort of the basics. I mean, I, I haven't been to Ukraine, so I don't know the terrain, the terrain, the way the way the home team obviously knows their own terrain. But I mean, just sort of some some of the big things. I mean, I just reached back to Clausewitz. Uh, Clausewitz, and uh, I think it's uh, I think it's Book Six, cha- Chapter Twenty Six, the Nation in Arms. The Nation in Arms, he thought was a new thing at that point, but it, but then he goes, he sort of offers a disclaimer, and then he goes on to give some really pretty penetrating insights on on what kinds of peoples and what kinds of countries are, are well suited to to an insurgency. He says things like, "Don't do, do not despair. 
I mean, yes, you may lose the initial battles and so forth, but you still have options. If you can rally the people, if you can, if, if you could discover new resources and new strength within yourself, that's a good thing. Also, if you show pluck, that helps you attract uh, foreign support because, uh, because your outside supporters have confidence that you might win and, and thus uh, not drag them down to defeat as well. Uh, disperse. I mean, that's a, that's a classic, I mean, that's a classic uh, insurgent tactic. Don't, don't mass, don't mass for a major battle, spread out and ambush, I mean, do the Maoist stuff, spread it out, get organized, do do ambushes on small enemy units and so forth. Uh, so they, that's, so they could, they could, they could, I hope they've been reading their Mao because I, because that's, I think that's something they could put to work for them. And then obviously just use all the, the advantages, go to the home team, the terrain, you know, the people, you know, the, the human terrain and just, and just put the, I mean, help, help the insurgents swim in the sea. It, in the sea of humanity that uh, that that surrounds them, as as Mao might have said. So, yeah. yeah, that was just kind of a quickie. But those were the three things that sort of stood out uh, when I sat down to to peck away the, the other day. Yeah, I saw a video a day or two ago of uh, of a crowd of Ukrainians protesting. Some Russian troops were gathered on the steps of a city hall somewhere, I think, in northeastern Ukraine, some regional re regional city, not one of the not not Kharkiv or Kiev, obviously. And uh, they, were, they were shouting at them, you know, Russia, go home, Russia, go home. And I thought to myself, gosh, you know, it's like you can probably set your watch to, uh, the, you know, it's, it's, it's minutes and seconds to the, the time it takes for that crowd to transform into to an insurgency rather than just a ad hoc protest. Yeah, I mean, the, the region does have a history of uh, insurgent fighting, reaching all the way back to World War II and the Balkans, of course, uh, the, the partisans in, in Yugoslavia. Yeah. 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 How, how much do you think Zelensky, I mean, you talk about pluck. I think you know we 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 can politely decline to to um, to discuss Ukrainian pre-war preparations, given the the sort of heroism and, and remarkable leadership that Zelensky has displayed since the fighting has begun, and it really has been a, a remarkable thing to watch. How how much do you think his survival matters in all of this? Wow, you know that's a, that's a great question. I don't, I'm not sure there's a, there's a general answer you can give about it. And insurgencies. I mean, you could think of you could think of insurgencies that have been decapitated, such as uh, after the Philip after the uh, Spanish American War. Uh, Aguinaldo laid down arms and on on the eve of the presidential election here in the United States, and that it didn't end the war, but it did. But it did uh, sort of uh, tell us who was going to win in the end. It still took several more years of uh, pretty pretty nasty fighting. But ultimately, the Philippines was uh, was annexed to the United States. It became American territory for for half a century or thereabouts. On the other hand, I mean, there there. I mean, with we even hear about people who do counterinsurgency for a living, talking about leaderless jihads and all that sort all that sort of thing. So, I, I think that I think there's no general there's no general answer to me. To me, he feels like an Aguinaldo, though. So if you if you if you if you pin me down, I think I think possibly without his inspirational leadership, uh, uh, we we would just have to see whether anybody else could take up that standard. Mm -hmm. Which is probably why Russia has uh, reportedly uh, smuggled assassins into Ukraine to, to, to hunt him down and his advisors. Yeah. yeah, and if I were Putin, I'd be pretty upset that they don't seem to have uh, succeeded yet. Um, yeah, a, I mean, you could look at Vietnam. I mean, Ho Chi. I mean, after after the demise of Ho Chi Minh, North Vietnam fights on and so forth. Uh, not under the same inspirational leadership, but they get it done. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess the worst case scenario. I mean, I, I, I mean, everyone's been very optimistic the last few days because of this, you know, tremendous Ukrainian resistance that's been occurring on the outskirts of, of Kiev and Kharkiv. But I, I mean, I've been, I've been the sour note in a number of conversations, pointing out that, um, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Baghdad was wasn't taken in in two days in two thousand three. Let's give it a couple of weeks. The Russians will probably succeed ultimately in in reducing these cities, even if they have to, um, to do it with tremendous brutality. 
but you know, following that, I think is when you really get into the sort of the possibility that Putin is the dog who caught the car. And I guess the worst case scenario for him is a Zelensky who survives, makes it out West. You have a kind of rump state in the West that needs to be reduced, but his so ex- his military is so exhausted. And as you, po- it's a g- great point you made a few minutes ago that he's re- he's holding a lot in reserve, probably to hedge against the possibility of a NATO intervention. So you have to grind it out to reduce that rump state. Meanwhile, fight all these fights in the rear. I mean, as, as as you know as well as I do, you you can succeed in counterinsurgency warfare. You can beat a counterinsurgency. Likely, the kinds of tactics that he would have to employ to do that would be so brutal. You know, happening happening in Europe in a way that it is hard for observers to sort of psychologically dismiss, as as I think a lot of people have sort of psychologically dismissed what's happened in Syria yeah. in the last decade. And it's just, it's hard to see, it's its hard to assess the benefit versus the cost for Putin in that scenario. And it doesn't seem to be the I, one uh, he was contemplating. I don't, I don't think so either. I mean, Kozovitz tells me that, it's, I mean, he tells you that, that if the weaker can, can, contender can stretch out on the counter and do to do damage to the, to the stronger competitor, ultimately, ultimately the, the strong really have to want it a whole lot in order to keep paying those costs for a very long period of time. And that's, that's really what insurgency is all about. I would say I would say that uh, counterinsurg- external counterinsurgents tend not to win. Domestic counterinsurgents tend to win. I mean, so so if the so if it were a, a purely internal thing within Ukraine, I think I think it would the odds would be on the government's side. But uh, but again, I mean, we've seen, of course our experience has been painful. Even the Soviet Union's experience in Afghanistan was painful trying trying to do that sort of thing. So I think that uh, yeah, if it goes into if they if they win that uh, conventional. Victory and then and ultimately go into a counterinsurgency, but I don't, yeah, I don't like Russia's chances. Yeah, but whether whether, uh, whether whether Putin can spend it as a victory, that would be sort of the, that would be sort of the, uh, I guess where where the rubber meets the road politically. So to do our own pivot to Asia here in the in the conversation, what is what is the outcome one way or the other in Ukraine mean for Taiwan and for Chinese designs on Taiwan? Well, I mean, it's sort of a sort of a dual-edged sword for for for, for uh, China. I mean, in a sense, if <clears throat> if Russia does very well, and it, I mean, if it were actually if it had actually managed to steamroll Ukraine, I think that that, that might have emboldened uh, China because it would show that 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 the, the 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 military forces of a power like China, as, as with Russia, could actually could actually get one of these operations done in shorter, which is what it's all about for Beijing. Mike Gallagher, a representative out of Wisconsin, uh, he like he likes to say, if there's a short war over Taiwan today, that means China has won. And therefore, therefore, what the United States needs to do is sort of what we've been talking about on, on the part of Ukraine. First of all, conv- convince China that it will not get a, get a short war by, by mounting a, a ter- deterrent in peacetime. And then obviously putting in, putting in place uh, measures to stretch, to stretch it out so that uh, the United States, the U.S. forces, whoever else may join in the, in the effort to succor Taiwan can actually get forces to the, to, to the combat zone in the face of Chinese anti-access defenses and so forth. So. So, it, so if if Beijing if Beijing interprets Russia's fate in Ukraine in, in that sort of positive light, they might have, this might actually help uh, Xi Jinping decide to to take the risk, basically throw the throw the dice in the Taiwan Strait. On the other hand, if, if things do go badly, if, if Russia gets bogged down, I think that that might give uh, Xi pause. I don't like Xi, Xi Jinping. I have no use for his purposes in the world, obviously. But he is he is an adult, and he I mean he's, he's he seems very prudent to me. And I, I think I, I think he would be uh, more inclined to hesitate, hesitate rather than do something early in, in the next few weeks or months or whatever. There's been a lot of talk about uh, 2027 being the, the the time the time frame in which China would like to have the military option in place for a guaranteed win over Taiwan. 
I think that I think that it's, I think he would be more inclined to continue his military buildup for the next five years or so forth, and and see what happens then. Yeah, actually, I actually don't think he set a deadline. By the way, Admiral Admiral Davison last year again he made huge headlines. People are still talking about the the six year window up to twenty twenties. I don't think that's I don't think that's the Chinese. They like to talk about anniversaries and so forth, and they and they do, but I, I don't think they're they put themselves on a on a on a firm timetable to do something in twenty twenty seven. Could be before then, could be after. I think that's just when they want the option in place. Interesting. Yeah. It just by the way, just because you raised him, I just want to say um, I'm I'm a Mike Gallagher fan. He's a smart guy. And going places, had, people should pay attention to him. Yeah, I had dinner with him a couple of weeks ago when he was in town. Very very smart man. That's yeah. I was I was I was kind of you sort of when you when you meet with a congressman or a senator or somebody like that, you sort of assume they're but their staffers have their staffers have, have worsened them up on what to say and so forth. No, not at all. I mean, this is a guy who I think does his own writing. He writes very well and obviously keeps up on the issues. Agreed. Agreed. So, so many ways into this. Maybe one way we could think about it is. So I, I, I mean, I, I defer to you and 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 essentially agree. I mean, she clearly is going to probably think differently about Taiwan one way or the other based on the outcome in Ukraine. How how difficult of a military problem? is the invasion and conquest of Taiwan versus the difficulty of the problem that Putin is actually dealing with right now in terms of Ukraine for, for the PLA, you, you know, is this on the spectrum between, you know, walk in the park to so difficult, they probably shouldn't attempt it. How hard is knocking off Taiwan, whether attempted in 2027 or 2030, or, you know, in some meaningful time frame going forward compared to the, the difficulty that Putin faces right now? Well, I think I think it's really hard. I mean, I mean, you just have to look at the map and see. That, I mean, it's a very different. It's a very different problem. Obviously, the Taiwan Strait itself is a is a is a major problem. Just because we know how. I mean, we did amphibious stuff in World War II. But, I mean, we know we know how hard it was. Think about Iwo Jima and and all those other uh, Okinawa, especially all those uh, U.S. Marine Corps uh, landings, U.S. Army landings that uh, that took so took so many lives on both sides. It's I mean, so that that's hard. The, uh, the the island itself. I mean, the the, the geography. I spent a lot of time in Taiwan. It's where I usually usually go in Asia. There there are a huge number of very high mountain peaks. It's this is this is this is terrain in which it would be very easy to to some mount resistance in in the back country and really and really give an occupying power a really hard time. Uh, and, and of course, you can't leave out the military element as well. The of course the the the, the ruling government in in Taipei needs to do things to make things even harder on the PLA if it wants to try a cross strait amphibious invasion. They're doing some of this. I mean, they've they've start, they've at least tried to tried to de-emphasize major platforms like you know major warships and, and so forth in favor of smaller warships, uh, all packed with anti-ship missiles. They're working on submarines. We'll see how we'll see how that goes, and then so forth. So this is this is what uh, this is what Bill Murray here at the War College just uh, some years ago called the the porcupine strategy. And my my friend Toshi Yoshihara and I fought, followed up on that uh, with with sort of a maritime a maritime version of that, say, looking at what Taiwan could do in 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 the water surrounding Taiwan to augment the porcupine defenses that uh, that Bill that Bill wanted to put station on land. So it's an anti-access problem. I mean, it's a, it's basically it's basically anti-access and area denial. Taiwan is 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 sort of what Taiwan needs to work on. Yeah. So so there's obviously this regime-oriented dimension to Chinese thinking about Taiwan, where Taiwan is as it were the, the unfinished business of the revolution, the last remaining piece of yeah. of the sort of inviolable territory. Of, of China that needs to be, you know, returned to government control. There's also a, a, a kind of strategic piece to it that in certain ways, Chinese thinking about the South China Sea, you know, also the area to the Northeast of Taiwan, the way that China is thinking about it and acting within it 
has some echo of American thinking about the Caribbean, you know, a hundred years ago. Uh, this was something I was just talking over with uh, with Bruce Jones at, at Brookings a, a couple of weeks ago. And I, and I asked him, is there anyone out there doing serious work on this this parallel? That is to say, the, the parallel of the, the construction of, of American power and American naval power and projection in its sort of, you know, local Mediterranean, if you will, at the turn of the 20th century versus China's thinking about the projection of naval power within the first island chain today. And he said, it's, yeah, sure, of course, there's a whole team at the Naval War College essentially crashing on these questions and doing all sorts of interesting work. You know, what what do we have to learn about Chinese thinking about its own security concerns by looking at the earlier history of, of the American Republic's thinking about its own security concerns? And I think, you, I think people are going to think that I, uh, that, that I primed you with that question. I've, I've been working on, in fact, I did my dissertation on uh, on uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the Monroe Doctrine in the mm-hmm. Caribbean Sea, his handling, his handling of the uh, uh, of uh, European interventions in Santo Domingo and Venezuela and places like that, and that sort of and that sort of morphed naturally over into looking at other seas around the world in, in similar terms, and, and not only looking at the geography, but as you said, looking at uh, how the local great power uh, tends tends to think about those seas, what prerogatives it, it, it asserts, and so forth. My very first time out to Taiwan was uh, I had a I had the uh, fellowship out there in Taipei in Taipei in uh, 2005, and that was that was exactly the project that I, that I did. And I called it, I called the piece uh, China's Caribbean in the South China Sea. There you go. It's kind of an, it's, it's kind of a, it's, I mean, there's, the parallels are pretty striking. I mean, if you look around the, the, the Caribbean rim, one great power and a, and a lot of, and a lot of smaller powers that, that also have to worry about outside intervention. South China Sea today, one great power and a lot of smaller pow- powers that are worried about, in this case, the, 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 the local power being the interventionist power. And as, as China has, has made abundantly clear, it's, uh, I think that my, this question comes up a lot, and I think it's a good one. But uh, when when somebody sort of get, sort of poses it as a gotcha question, hey, I mean, in fact, this, this is what the Chinese are always doing. Hey, we're we're not doing anything differently in Asia than you all did in the Caribbean a century ago. And I always point out that uh, there was no nine dash line in, in closing the Caribbean rim in which the United States claimed sovereignty. I mean, sovereignty means this belongs to us. Sovereignty is nothing more than state ownership of, of geographic space. There was no such thing. The United States, I, I think the United States, especially in the years under, under under Taft and Wilson, really got out of control intervening in Latin America under under the Monroe Doctrine. But at the same time, they never claimed it as a sovereign property. So yes, maybe sort of the same thing. But at the same time, what China is trying to do is an order of magnitude more severe than what the United States ever did. And oh, by the way, the United States uh, disavowed that sort of foolishness in the 1920s. And the Monroe Doctrine, more or less, certainly the Teddy Roosevelt corollary went away. And the Monroe Doctrine has, has been hibernating for a very long period of time as well. So yeah, matter of degrees, I guess. Yeah, well, in, in, indeed, as you as you put it, the sort of extent of severity applies not only to the policy with respect to you know South China Sea versus Caribbean, but indeed to the the kind of leadership that the United States has shown in the world um, yeah. over the course of its period of supremacy versus the kind of leadership that a uh, leadership in quotes uh, in that sentence that uh, that China would show if it uh, if it occupied that you know hegemonic position. Yeah. By the way, you can you can apply those. You can apply that comparison to the Arctic as well. I mean, that's that's also very. It's very different, obviously, for a lot of reasons. But because you don't have a one do- predominant uh, great power facing off across there, you, you have it's a NATO Russia thing, and it, with a couple of other uh, countries thrown in. So that's. But yeah, I mean, in a sense, we're like, we're watching a new sea come in, a new geopolitical sea come in, come into being at the top of the world as as that becomes more navigable for more of each year. We're, we're running towards the end of our, our time here, but I want to I want to ask you, especially since we are, you know, 
we are seeing seeing Putin play such an aggressive hand. We're seeing Europe at the center of the conversation in a way that it hasn't been for for some time. I was just um, just one data point to, to illustrate the obvious here. I was at a the Halifax uh, International Security Forum in, in in November, and there's an evening with breakout dinners. You know, and I don't know. Let's say there were 20 dinners. There were like 18 dinners on Asia and China. Maybe one dinner focused on the Middle East, and one one dinner the subject of which was NATO and European security. And that was November. That was November, whereas I understand it already in the sort of the classified sources, you had pretty pretty strong information pointing towards where things were, were tending in Ukraine. It wasn't really puncturing out into the open source world yet. Now, of course, everyone is is talking about Europe. Everyone is talking about NATO. And um, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll see. It'll, it'll be interesting to watch and see whether that persists or whether this will be just more of a, of a uh, temporary thing. Yeah, my, my last time in the UK, I was I was over to to uh, to uh, oh my gosh, I'm now I'm now zoning on out of the out of the location that the foreign and Commonwealth office runs a, runs an old estate south of, south of London where you could convene mm-hmm. inter- international gatherings. Yeah. We, they had me over to talk about the South China Sea, and it was really sh- I was really shocked to see how, how our European friends had uh, had swiveled, basically pivoted towards Asia themselves, at least in their attitudes. Everybody, everybody wanted, I was the only American, I think. So everybody wanted me to tell them uh, what they could do for us in the Indo-Pacific. Thankfully, we've seen them do some stuff for, for us that's been pretty impressive, like the, the Royal Navy's deployment uh, uh, to the to, uh, to Japan and the, and the Philippine Sea this past year. Yeah. Well, here, here's the question I'll, I'll close this with then, which is given the crisis Wilton that we have. Wilton Park. You see, I'm, Wilton I'm not, Park. Got yeah, it. <laughs> I'm not senile after all. <laughs> it happens, uh, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. It takes time for the file to load sometimes. It, it is the general notion, we could phrase it however we want in different, different bumper stickers, give different people heartburn, but pivot to Asia, rebalancing, seeing the Indo-Pacific as the primary theater is, as you've pointed out, a series of administrations have directed you know, the government to do. Is that still the right strategic concept? As far as as far as pivoting to Asia, yeah. As far as should the United States continue? Should when we think about our security concerns in the, the biggest possible lens, is focusing on right. Asia and the Pacific at the expense of the Middle East and Europe, the right the, the right lens. And we could also debate, you know, to, at what level of expense, right? You know, is it is it a complete cut off of right. our considerations in the Middle East and Europe? Is it, you know, 50% in one and 30% in the other? You know, we could debate all that, but is the primacy of, of the Asia Pacific as, as the region of future conflict, the right way to look at the world? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the economics, the geopolitics, I mean, I would, I mean, I would like to, the, the, the Pentagon always talks, when you're doing military planning, you always talk about the supported force and the supporting force. I, I would I would hope we could work out some sort of uh, division of labor whereby the European Union and especially NATO are the support dead force in in, in the in Europe and the in the Atlantic and the United States is the supporting force whereas we whereas we will take the lead in the Indo Pacific in concert with other allies and friends like India Australia uh, obviously Japan South Korea and so forth so it wasn't what the exact what the exact uh, dimensions of that uh, of that pivot of that pivot are in resource terms. We have about sixty percent of the fleet and, and uh, associated joint forces in the Indo Pacific now. Whether that's the right number, obviously, uh, obviously, as a naval guy, I would I would love to see Admiral Gilday get his way. And he's he's been talking about a five hundred ship navy, yep. including including a sizable contingent of unmanned craft of all types or unmanned surface and subsurface craft. Well, if, if we had the, if we had the resources, I mean, think think about back to 1940 when uh, when Congress 
Interestingly, in, in the in the wake of the fall of France, that was what galvanized Congress to pass the Two Ocean Navy Act of 1940 and essentially build a second United States Navy so that we could have a, a self-sufficient fleet in the Atlantic and another one in the Pacific. I mean, to me, that would be sort of the best case scenario. It, it remains to be seen whether this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine will apply that sort of stimulus to Congress, which has not passed a defense budget. Well, it, it actually passed a defense authorization bill, but it hasn't appropriated funds to pay for it. So we're limping along. We're limping along right now on continuing resolutions that freeze funding at last year's levels that don't let us move move around uh, money in, in, in innovative ways, cuts into operations and training. I mean, it's just it's just a bad thing. If kind of, if this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine actually uh, actually electrifies Congress a little bit and helps them get serious about uh, geopolitics, I think that would be a good thing all around. But yeah, as an Asia guy, I'll say, I'll say yes, Indo-Pacific, way to go. Oh, well, I, I wholeheartedly agree with your your observations on 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 the budget and on Gilday's plan for for the Navy, and I, I I take your point on on Asia, and it is it's hard it's hard to look at the numbers and it's hard to look at you know China compared to Russia in objective terms and not decide that you know we ought to have some sort of main effort consideration for for the Pacific. That said, I, you know we'll probably get we'll probably get all that worked out in the next ten years or so, only to be surprised by some catastrophe uh, in the Middle East or who knows South America. You know, it's, um, kind of, it's kind of interesting. The, the Tuition Navy Act uh, boosted uh, boosted U.S. Navy tonnage by about seventy percent. If you if you run the numbers between today's fleet and what and, and a five hundred ship fleet, it's almost exactly the same percentage hmm. of, of it's, it's about something like two thirds, about two thirds increase. Of course, that's just yeah. tonnage. That's just tonnage. That's not that's not all. That's not all important. But yeah, so where that's kind of is is twenty two or is twenty twenty two nineteen forty? It, it kind of feels like it. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, uh, journalists and scholars writing at the time, writing in the 1920s and 30s, used to refer to the period in which they were living as the post-war period. Yeah. Um, and then wait, now we call it the interwar period. Yeah. Of course, Colin Gray, the late Colin Gray said that all, for anybody who uh, pays attention to history, all all periods of peacetime are interwar periods. Kind of a kind of a, a kind of a bleak view, but I can't disagree with it. James Holmes, professor at the Naval War College. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.